Honor. What do you think of when you hear the word honor? Perhaps in our culture, we define honor as high respect and great uh, esteem. You honor someone because of their accomplishments or their place in society, their status. Maybe you honor someone because of their adherence to what is right or what is conventionally standard. Or you honor to agree to the social etiquette of your times. Like baseball players will honor the unwritten rules of baseball most of the time. And if not, they'll get plunked at the plate. That's some sort of honor. Or you honor that you fulfill or keep your obligation. I, I keep my word. I keep my promise. There's a certain honor in that. Or there's even a sense of honor that we, people that serve in the military, there's an honor for them, honor for them to serve in that capacity. And we honor them. Certainly all those are appropriate uses of the word honor and, and many, many more. But a more clearly, a more biblical, a more precise understanding of the word honor in Scripture is honor equals value. Honor equals value. The same word that we hear that uh, Jesus, the Father glorifies and Jesus honors his Father and the Father honors his, the Son and, and they dishonor Jesus. It's that same word is used to describe Judas' betrayal of Jesus in Matthew 27, 9. Then was fulfilled what has been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. That word, the price of him, that's the same word as honor. You just, you just think about in that context that Judas places a value on Jesus of 30 pieces of silver. Now, you and I, may we would never do that. But the reality, Judas places a value on any human life for 30 pieces of silver. Judas is not honoring life very much at all because Judas knew what was going to happen. When you honor something, you're indicating how much value you place on that someone or that something. Michael Scott in the office says it this way to make it more clearly to you. Presents are the best way to show someone how much you care. It's like this tangible thing that you can point to and say, hey man, I love you this many dollars worth. Honor and value. And so perhaps some of us Practice this idea of Michael Scott's value of honor at Christmas time with our kids. And so we, we set up price, a range, like this is how much we're going to spend per each kid. And you want to be pretty close. Like in case they somehow decide to Google up on your, your present and they're like, hey, mom and dad love you more? What's with that about? So we try to play this game of equal value of presents. Maybe you do. I'm actually really not that concerned about it. And it's, the thing is, is that the, usually the value of the present goes down with the, how old your age some of your kids are. I now have two kids that are 18. I hate to break it to them, but the value of their presents are going down. <laughs> because the older you get, you see this in your family, you might even stop giving presents to people that get older and older. Because like, well, you know what? It's not about the presents anymore, is it? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe in this moment you're feeling convicted how much you honor God with the tithe. 
that you give? How much value do you put in him? How do you honor God? How much do you value Jesus? And how do you value him? My personality is in this. I, I am an introvert, which is not unusual. There's lots of people that are introverts. But I do things differently, and I like being around people. But I have this little counter in my, it's a sliding scale, a counter in my life and my time and energy. And I count the cost in my mind before I have any human interaction. I think, how much is it going to cost me? How much energy do I have to expose that? So when there's impromptu human action, I do that really quickly in my mind. And there's a sliding scale and all that. But I do this all the time in my brain because uh, here's a, I, will, I honor and value people when I give my time to them because my time and my energy is the most precious thing to me. I'm not saying that's what it should be, I'm just telling you, that is what it is in my mind. My currency is to give my time and my energy, and it's what I hoard the most. It's what I protect the most. So an example, so when our schools or our kids' uh, teams, they have these fundraisers or want volunteers, I really say, just tell me how much you want to give because I'd rather give a physical check than my time and energy to those things, because I value my time and energy more. Now, here's a confession. And I know you are all a little bit holier and more sanctified than I am. But I find myself hoarding and withholding from God. I count my life. It's going to cost too much to spend more time with God, even though I know God is always present, but to spend more intimate time with him, that might be a little bit too much for me today. Too much emotional energy, and so I'm going to withhold that today. How am I valuing God? How am I valuing, valuing other people? We all have different currencies in our life. You may be like me, you may not be. Some of us is time and energy. Some of us is actual money. Some of us is this emotional investment, so on and so forth. We all have different currencies in our life. What is your currency? How are you honoring God? How are you valuing God? More importantly today is how does God tell us to honor and value him? That seems like the more interesting question. God's going to tell us, this is how I want you to honor me. This is how I want you to value me. In John 8, verses 48 through 59, the Jews answered Jesus. Remember the last section that we're at, Jesus kind of goes at them about who their father is. Are, you not, are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And so this is, this is a clear response to Jesus to saying, hey, my father before this is my father is God. You're and I God. That's my father. I obey him. And those that practice sin, you, 
you obey your father, and your father, he says clearly in verse 44, is the devil. All right, so you can imagine their, uh, their little anger is a little bit up, they're a little furious with Jesus. So instead of refuting Jesus' central point that obedience starts with abiding in the word of God, that valuing God starts with obedience and actually abiding in his word, honoring God in that way, they don't make a counter-argument to Jesus. What do they do? They name-call. There's an ad hominem attack on him. I, th- I think this is the, the early formation of social media started right here in Jesus' time, where instead of actually discussing the issue and counterpoint, they go right after him and call him, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. And for, for an a Israelite, for a Samaritan was a half-breed. They were half-Israelite, half-Gentile, and they, uh, they took off, they were just... They worshiped other gods, and they, there was kind of synchronism in their worship. And so they would avoid them. They were enemies. They want nothing to do with it. A Samaritan was unclean, not part of God's family. And so they said, look, your, your father is not God. You're a Samaritan. And more than that, you have a demon. Jesus honors and values the father. In verse 50 says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. He's saying, I don't have to prove to you who my father is, but here's one thing that will prove it. I don't seek my own glory. I don't seek my own glory. Kind of hidden behind that is you seek your own glory. You seek your own honor. God is the one the fa- what is interesting here is that Jesus seeks the glory of the Father, and what you're going to find in the text is the Father seeks the glory of the Son. He seeks his value, he seeks his weightiness, because this is what a glory is. Glory is an a honor and a value with weight to it, kind of a, a seriousness and a heaviness that's compared to it. So it's Glory is the same concept of honor. This is a value with much more weight to it. And the Father seeks this kind of honor and value to Jesus, just like Jesus seeks this kind of value and honor to the Father. So why would Jesus seek the Father's glory? And why would the Father seek Jesus' glory? I want you to put a pin in this question. We're going to come back to it because this is really fundamental to who we are. Why would Jesus seek the Father's glory, and why would the Father seek the Son's glory? John 5, 23 says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So in this concept, Jesus has already told you that we ought to all value and honor the Father God the Father, the same as we value and honor and glorify God the Son. It's the same. If you're going to at all value God, you have to value him the same way you have to value Jesus. Otherwise, you do not value the Father. So how, how does Jesus, how do we honor Jesus? How do we value God? In verse 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never 
see death. We value God when we keep his word. We talked about this last week. We value God when we keep his word, when we, we pay close attention to it, when we observe it, when we, we guard our hearts to it, we guard our time with it, which is just counter to what I sometimes, I told you, I sometimes I do not do. I kind of flee from it at times. When we guard and we obey it, we spend time with it. If you want, if you say, oh, I believe in God, if you really believe and value and honor God, you are going to be very interested in the words that come out of his mouth, what he speaks to us, what he tells us about himself, about the way the world is, about who we are. You are going to pay close attention to that and guard it and keep it. They're going to be precious to you, and you're going to value that way. And this is like how you value anyone. You value anyone by listening to them. If you just spend time with them and you actually don't listen, you get, I wasn't really listening. Can you repeat that again? And do that over and over. That's not valuing or loving that person. But if you're really focused, like I want to value and love someone, anyone, this is just good practical advice. Pay attention to what they're saying. Listen to them. Make them feel heard. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Make them feel heard. This is how we value and honor God, first and foremost. We keep his word. Verse 31, 831, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Knowing about Jesus, confessing who he is, even knowledge of a few verses, coming to church does not guarantee a deep, intimate relationship that values God. It's a good start, but it does not guarantee it. The way that we actually value and honor God is not just by listening, but by obeying. We hear it, and then we obey. Obedience in God's word, obedience in our own words, and our own deeds, that is how we value and honor God. It's how children will value and honor their parents, with their words and their deeds. We listen and we obey. You value and treasure Jesus we ought to value and treasure Jesus so much that we're willing to follow him and obey him no matter the cost. We're going to do the things that he does. Jesus keeps the Father's word. Jesus keeps the Father's will. John 8, 55. But you have not known him. I know him, Jesus says. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. I would actually go on to say, if you actually don't keep God's word, if you don't listen to it and you don't obey him, you actually don't know him very well. Now, I know you and I will fail to keep his word. But one of the ways that he has to keep his word is to repent. So if we begin to live a life constantly, we come here every Sunday, we, we have a prayer confession, time of repentance, that this is how we should live our life, is constantly in repentance. That we are not following God, or not keeping and obeying his word. 
Jesus doesn't ask us just to keep his word or to keep the Father's word. He doesn't ask us for something that he is not going to do first. Jesus does this first for us. He models it. It's actually one of the reasons why God comes into the world as Jesus, this incarnational God in the flesh. He shows us, he actually models what obedience looks like in our life. What obedience and valuing and honoring God is. It's, it's not just, he comes to the world, not just. He comes to the world to die, to pay the penalty of our sins, to give us his righteousness, right? He, that is all part of it. But it also is the way he lives his life is a model to us. It is the way for us. It's who we're called to be. A life, to live a life valuing God over everything else. The Son values the Father over everything else. Thomas Aquinas says this. We pay God honor and reverence not for his sake, because he himself full of glory to which no creature can add anything, but for our own sake. There's such a deep biblical truth to that. God tells us to glorify him and honor him and value him above all else. You can say, wow, that's really conceited of God. But the thing is, God doesn't need us to value him. God doesn't need us to honor him. God doesn't need us to glorify him. He doesn't need anything. He is complete of himself. In him is full of all glory. What he actually does is begin to share his honor and to share his glory with us. And he says, I, God wants the best for us. Like any good parent, he wants the best for his children. And the best thing, the best thing you and I can ever have is a relationship with God. That is the best thing you can have. And so when we learn to honor and value God for what he is, that he is the most valuable we begin to actually understand that it's not for his benefit. It actually is for our benefit. When we recognize his value and his honor. You see, God is not just the means to salvation. Jesus isn't just the means to salvation. He is the end of salvation. A lot of times we get in our life, we think of the end of, of a place that's free of sin and love and peace. And, and we make it more about us. Heaven, we have to talk about heaven, but it's very clear in scripture. Heaven is just a description of being with God, a place where God is omnipresent and we all know it, that we are with him. God is the end of salvation. He's also the means of it as well. In him is all glory and honor. The benefit of valuing and honor Jesus is to us, not to him. In John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Why is that? Because honoring and serving Jesus is honoring and serving the father. John 8, 51, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
In verse 40, he goes on, he clarifies this, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. These, remember, these Jews that are questioning Jesus, they're described as believing Jews. People with fickle faith. And they don't understand that Jesus is not talking about physical death here in verse 51, that, that everyone who keeps my word will not see death. But he's talking about spiritual death, being separated from God. And they ask him, like, are, listen, are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than the prophets who died already? Saying that you won't die and that we won't die? That doesn't make any sense. And the short answer to that question that Jesus doesn't answer says, yes, he is greater. They asked a good question. Yes, I am greater than Abraham. And yes, I am greater than all the prophets. Because he is God. In John 8, 56, your father Abraham, he says, rejoice that he would see my day. Jesus says, your father Abraham, which you're clinging tightly, that that's how you are saved because you're connected by blood to Abraham. He said, Abraham rejoiced, past tense, that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, they were very clear in understanding what Jesus was saying, but I want to make sure that we're clear. He's not saying that Abraham is in heaven, dead already, and he sees Jesus in his current day, in this moment, and he says, oh, he rejoiced and glad because the Son has come into the world. That's not what he's saying. They all understood it and say, look at Jesus. They said, you're not even 50 years old. You know, Jesus is around 30 years old, let alone 2,000 years old, which was how the difference between Jesus' age and Abraham's, about 2,000 years. Like, you're not even 50 years old, let alone 2,000 years. You did not exist when Abraham around. You weren't present for Abraham to see you, because that's what Jesus is claiming. That's what they, they knew he was claiming. That's absurd. And Jesus goes on to say, in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, we've been talking about that I am statement over and over. This is a deliberate statement again that's connected over and over what Jesus said, particularly in John, that he is referencing the introduction of God to Moses by name, that I am the great I am. It was clear to all who heard it. Because Jesus doesn't say to them, before Abraham was, I was. Which he could have said, which would have made, almost meant the same thing. Right? I was back then, and I am now. He doesn't say that. He says, means the same thing. He says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And of course, this is why they actually turned to kill him and stone him in this moment. How dare he claim to be equal to God? Let's go back to the pin. Why would Jesus seek the Father's glory and the Father seek Jesus' glory? Why would Jesus value and honor the Father and the Father honor and value the Son? Wouldn't it, shouldn't it just be the one way? Uh, this is really important. This is a foundational understanding of the Trinity, how God reveals himself to us. The Westminster Confession of Faith, I think, explains it well. I don't know if we'll clarify it to you, but explains it well. In, verse, in chapter 2, uh, paragraph 3, in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, 
having one substance, power, and eternity. One substance, one power, one eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father exists. I love that sentence. The Father exists. He is not generated and does not come from any source. He's always existed. It's definition of eternity. He's always been there. The Son is eternally generated from the Father. And the Holy Spirit eternally comes from the Father and the Son. So I just want to pause there for a moment. What does eternally generated mean? Is there a beginning point to that? No. It's forever. So the Father has always existed, and Jesus, the Son, has always existed, who has been eternally generated from the Father. That's always had. There's not a beginning point. There wasn't a moment like, aha, the Son's going to exist. And the Holy Spirit is eternally generated because it's the same Spirit from the Father and the Son. There wasn't a point in time where the Father and the Son said, you know what we need to do? We need to generate the Spirit. They've always existed. It's, like, you know, I, it's not a great way of explaining, because it's hard to comprehend this eternal reality, but I just I want you to understand that they've always existed together. This is so important, because no other faith has this concept. Lots of faith talk about love, not, I don't think, in the same way as Christianity, but they talk about the foundational thing to understand about God is that the Father and the Son eternally exist in a mutually honoring and valuing relationship. Always glorifying each other above everything else. They're in a mutually loving relationship. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. For God so loved the son, so the son so loved the father that he obeys his will. This is all the same. They have the same will. I, I want you to understand, this is not, we see Jesus submitting to the father's will all the time, but he has the same will. But it's described in scripture. One of that ways is because of incarnational ministry, Jesus is modeling submission for us ontologically, by the very substance of who the Father and the Son in, son, there is no subordination. Ontologically. There is no subordination within the Trinity that one is greater than the other. They're all one God. One God. Mutually submissive all the time because they have the same will. In terms of salvation, how it plays out, there is an economic, how it works, there is an economic subordination. The the son always submits to the father will, even though ontologically there is no subordination. But it's modeled to us. There is an eternal, mutual, loving, submissive relationship to each other. The father submits to the son. The son submits to the, to the father. It's, it's this way all the time. When you value some, someone properly, you love them. Only when you value them properly. The son always values the father properly. The father always values the son properly. For you and I, this is a struggle. This is a struggle in our love because sometimes we undervalue people and sometimes we overvalue people. You think about how can we overvalue people when you put people before God? You overvalue them. You have not put them in the proper place. 
when you put animals before people, you are undervaluing people. Be kind and gracious to animals, right? This is good. Don't hear me saying, not saying that, right? But when you, there's a proper place. There's a proper place for me how I love my kids and how my life. But if they're first in everything in my life, I have overvalued them. If you're willing to sell someone for 30 pieces, you have undervalued them. If we allow racism or slavery or any kind of that devaluing of people's sexual exploitation, you are undervaluing people. You are not loving them properly. The Father and Son have a mutual vowing, loving, eternal relationship with other and is modeled to us constantly. This is how it's told we are to love God. Tells us the great commandment. Love God. What's the best way we can love God? How do we demonstrate that we love God? We love our neighbors. We value people properly and we love them. And, and the best way, not the only way, the best way. Hear this very clearly. Not the only way. If this is the only way you love them, you do not love people properly. But the best way is to tell them and show them Share who Jesus is. Tell them who the one who is love is. Tell them, show them in this mutual, this father son who's in this mutual, submissive, loving relationship. Which, interesting enough, this is the call that he has in our lives as well. The father and son are mutually submissive to each other ontologically forever and ever because they value and glorify each other properly. Above all else, in Ephesians 5.1, Paul tells us clearly, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And then in Ephesians 5.21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of honor to Christ, out of glorifying Christ. Submit to him as brothers and sisters, honoring each other, valuing each other properly in this mutually loving relationship that you have. And then it goes on to tell us, particularly, hey, even in a marriage, you should submit to each other. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. You can say, respect and honor the husbands as well, wives, and, and husbands to love their wives. I think those words are really synonymous to each other in that context, submission and love. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, not just the young people, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Some uh, later translations actually add, it's probably not actually in there, but they actually add because they understand what's going on here, is submit to each other. Because in this concept of humility is submission. Properly valuing someone, properly loving someone. That I'm not thinking too highly of myself, that I'm going to put the needs of the others first. And I'm going to lay down my life for them. This idea of humility is submission. What does God say? I oppose those who are proud. I oppose those who are not humble. The golden rule. 
and which most all faiths have, but Jesus is the one that demonstrates it, right? The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. God wants us to love him. He wants us to actually value and glorify him. So what does he do? He says, I am going to love you. I'm going to model what love is. And how does he do that? He laid down his life. He lays down his life. What does he want us to do then? He wants us to lay down our lives for him. And how are we to do that? We lay down our lives for each other. That's how you practically do it. You can't just say, I lay down my life and do nothing. I lay down for God and I'll do everything for God and then actually do nothing in the world. That's not laying down your life. God has made it very clear. This is how I want you to lay down your life. Lay it down for others. And Jesus models this first. He doesn't just say, do this. He models it. This is what I mean. So if you're confused, what does Jesus mean by the golden rule? Just look at his life. He's been very clear. How do we honor God? How do we value Jesus? We abide and obey his words. We follow him. We follow him in love. We follow him in a love that is humble, that is submissive. This is a love that submits to God, first of all, by abiding in his word, listening to it, knowing it, paying attention, valuing God above all things, above all things. And secondly, by mutually submitting and valuing each other, by loving each other. 2 Timothy 2 describes it this way. I'm not going to quote it directly, but it says, you can look it up, 2 Timothy 2, verse 20. It says, we are vessels, we are created to be vessels of honor. We are created to be vessels that actually honor God, that value him properly. And when we value God properly, we begin to value everyone properly. Brothers and sisters, let us learn to honor God. Let us learn to follow him, to abide in his word, to, to be eager in that, to honor him in all things we do by loving our neighbors, by valuing them properly, by being mutually submissive to each other as he models for us, laying down our lives for each other. I describe this when people have come to talk about uh, in premarital or marital counseling. I say, you know, express your will and want to each other. And then if you hear your spouse or your beloved say that they want something, more often than not, because you love them, you're going to like, I'm going to find a way to make that happen. Now, sometimes it could be against God, right? It doesn't mean we always do what they want. But in your heart, you want to honor and value them. And so when you express it, and when you have two lives that are submitting to each other, you may think, how does anything get done? Well, here's, here's the point I think what Scripture is saying is that the reality is, is when lives are not submitting, that's when nothing gets accomplished. Only when we submit, only when we submit in love, does anything worth of value get accomplished. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I come to you humbly repenting that I do not always value you. I do not always honor you in the way that you should be.
that I do not always honor and value the people around me. Lord, we pray and we ask that you draw us to you. Draw us to your word that we're eager to guard and to keep and to cherish this word and to follow you and to obey it. To hear and listen and to obey. Help us, Lord. Help us to be people that love you above all things and to love each other because we love you. We thank you that you are God that doesn't just tell, but you model and show us the way because we would never find this way. We give you all praise and honor, Lord. Help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, all good people say, amen.